turn once again, if you would, to the book of Titus, the book of Titus chapter 2. We're not going to finish this book, um, but uh, we will get finished this section of the book that uh, we've been laboring on for two weeks now, but chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The background to this section of the scripture really uh, appeals back to chapter 1, verse 11, in which we discovered that there were those who were disrupting the church and specifically were destroying whole households. And so what we find in these first 10 verses here are instruction from Paul to explain how households are to be conducted in order uh, for the gospel to have free reign and success. So one by one, he has addressed the common members of the first century home. He starts with the most obvious, older men, older women, then younger men, and younger women. And now, here in verses 9 and 10, perhaps a group that seems a little odd to us, and that is slaves. Um, this, is, this is a little bit unusual to us because we don't anticipate uh, slaves being part of a household, and perhaps uh, we might be tempted to say, well, this really has no application to us. There are no slaves today. And so what we find here in verses 9 and 10 seems a little bit out of place and certainly doesn't seem to have anything to do with a household. Of course, that's because, in most part, modern households, at least in Western society, are made up of family members and social equals. We have no slaves. In fact, if you have a slave, we've got a problem that we need to talk about here. Uh, our homes consist of mom, dad, and kids. Maybe occasionally my grandma and grandpa might be there, but for the most part, we're thinking in terms of a nuclear family. Uh, but in the first century home, not only do you have mom and dad and the kid and grandma and grandpa, and also a whole slate of slaves, a, 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 a a staff of those who are servants who would cook and clean and tend livestock and gardens and instruct the children and do repairs and frankly anything they were told to do. So that, that's a standard home. And first century Christians were found at every level of this, of this arrangement. There were moms and dads and kids and grandmas and grandpas. And there were also a great number of Christians who were slaves. They were employed. Uh, by their owners, these, these families. Occasionally, these staff were given a small wage, uh, but for the most part, uh, they labored just for room and board and, the, uh, and the, uh, the, 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 the ability to continue living. So they were slaves. Uh, this was a sort of slavery in which there were perhaps glimmers of upward mobility that was possible, even eventual freedom, but for the most part, they were what we would call slaves. Life was very hard for them, but as has been true of nearly every era of church history, we find that God often sees fit to build his church from the lower classes, not always, uh, not entirely, but oftentimes the lower classes are uh, the, those who populate the church. Few, remember in 1 Corinthians 1, few are of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the weak and foolish things of the world, the lowly things and despised things, to be the boast 
of the church so that the, uh, the glory would not go to great men, but to a great God. Of course, with the identification of these individuals as slaves, which is an empty set in our American culture, it may be difficult to see how these verses have any sort of significance to us today. Perhaps the most common thing that you'll see people do is simply transfer all of the instructions in these verses to our experience in the workplace. So it's instructions for employees. And so perhaps we hear here, work hard at the mill, don't steal, don't cause disturbances, and you'll earn the respect of your employer and your co-workers and have opportunities for the gospel. You'll adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And of course this is true, but it and at least plays into what application we're going to give to this passage. Uh, these slaves were doing hard work for their masters, but you'll remember that this passage is not concerned primarily about the gospel in the workplace, as important as, important as that is, but rather, the first concern that Paul has is the stability of households. Okay? Uh, he sees this as the, the unit that needs to be kept stable in order for the success of the gospel. So this is a domestic concern that intersects with the gospel mission. Of course, those things cannot always be divorced. I mean, we, we, have, we have domestic concerns and workplace concerns that intersect with one another, of course. Uh, still, the fact that the instruction came as part of a household code suggests that the primary point of comparison between the slaves of Titus 2 and the present day is not that we all go to work, but rather that we're all part of civil situations in which people hate us, okay? That seems to be the, the point of, concern, of, of, of contrast. We're held in contempt. And so while the application of the principles of these verses in the workplace is not something I want to discourage, it's going to show up again as we work our way through this passage, the crucible for the whole discussion is the Christian's domestic life. And so the question that it answers is, how do I successfully bear witness for Christ in civil and domestic situations where people hate Christ and where people hate me. And at some level, we're there, right? And if you're not, then Scripture has something to say to you as well because we should not be surprised, right, if the world does hate us. They are going to have some sort of animosity towards us simply because we are followers of Christ. And that's something that we should expect. I know some of you are in a situation where people hold you in contempt, whether that be in your family, whether that be in your workplace, because you're a believer. And the question is, what should we do? Well, Paul gives us some instruction here, and I think we can uh, find that for our modern concerns. The first point, and this is a dangerous thing to do, is to make a point from something that's not said in these verses. Perhaps I should read them just so we understand where we're coming from. Verses 9 and 10. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the gospel of God, our Savior, in every respect. What is not stated in these verses is perhaps a surprise to us. What is Startling absent here, here is uh, any sort of reference here to some sort of opportunity for Christians to avoid this situation. As good Americans, 
we apprise freedom very highly. And we would expect, perhaps, that Paul would say, well, agitate with civil disobedience, agitate for moral reforms, for the relief of slaves and those who are oppressed. But Paul doesn't do that. Okay? I mean, we, we, we live in an era right now within evangelical life where we need to be woke. You know, are you familiar with that word? It's out there in the, uh, in the, in the, in the blogs and, and everything. But the idea here is that we need to be aware of social injustice and doing everything we can to solve the problem. And if we read this passage carefully and correctly, Paul is actually trying to preserve the stability of households in which slavery is being practiced by trying to do nothing to solve this problem. Neither here nor in Titus, or in fact anywhere in Scripture, do we find any argument against slavery. You, you look in vain for it. It's, it's a surprise to us. There's no warrant for overturning domestic and civil inequities of life, whether that be the disagreeable marriages that we looked at in the first half of this chapter, or whether that be slavery under discussion today, or the charges that are out there of racism or misogyny or gender inequality and, and the like that are part of today's discussion. There's no biblical argument here for the abolition of slavery, even in Christian households. Instead, Paul gives instruction quite in keeping with that of 1 Corinthians 7, which is the most comprehensive discussion of that topic. 1 Corinthians 7, 21 says this, Were you a slave when you were called? That is, when you became a Christian, he says, Do not be concerned about it. However, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's explaining to his readers how they are to respond to a series of domestic problems that face new believers. If I get saved, for instance, this is what the largest discussion in the chapter is, if I get saved and my spouse doesn't, what should I do? Should I leave? Should I leave the spouse behind? And Paul says, no, no, no. No, you can't do that. We want to keep the households together in order for opportunities for the gospel to abound. Now, if that person wants to leave and insists on leaving, you may let them go. You're not bound in any respect, he says. But as much as is possible, you want to keep the family structures together in order that the gospel can move forward. He says, if I get saved and I want to get married, should I? Whom should I marry? If my spouse saves me after I get saved, what do I do then? Can I remarry? And so forth. And, and Paul's relentless answer comes in verse 17. Let every person lead the life that the Lord has assigned for him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So if you're saved and you're part of a household, whether that be a husband, a wife, a child, or in their case, slaves, don't try and change your situation. Live in that situation in such a way that you can adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ and bear witness for Jesus Christ in whatever situation you have to happen to be in. And as we move towards the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul specifically addresses slaves. If I get saved, perhaps the question might be, should I try to escape? And Paul's answer is found there in verse 21. He concedes that free people 
just like single people earlier in the chapter, sometime have a greater range of opportunities to serve God. So if you have the opportunity legitimately to rise up out of your situation and become a free man, do so because there are greater opportunities for the gospel for free people than for slaves. But his general rule is this, don't be really worried about that. that, that that's, that's not the top thing on your, on your concern uh, scale. You not need to continue on in the same life that God has assigned to you. He says, don't be concerned about it. Or NIV says, don't let it trouble you. Paul's message is instead consistent with the rest of the chapter. You don't have to change your civic or domestic situation in order to bear witness for Christ. In fact, tying that passage with ours tonight, trying to escape might actually disrupt the household and lead to fewer opportunities for the gospel. So that disagreeable spouse, those cruel authority figures, that they're your gospel responsibility. You're to be bearing witness to Jesus Christ to those people who are oppressing you, who hold you in contempt, who hate you. They're your mission field. So the first principle, then, I'd like to suggest from what this text does not say is this. Don't withdraw from uncomfortable opportunities for the gospel. There's a tendency, I think, for all of us to do that, right? I avoid those difficult situations. Yeah, Uncle Joe mocks me because I don't laugh as his, at his crude humor. Or your own children, perhaps, roll their eyes when you mention Jesus Christ again. Please, don't start talking about that again, perhaps, they would say. Or when the guys at work needle you to see how much you can take before you snap. Our tendency is to sort of withdraw or sort of to conceal the fact that we're Christians. And Paul says, no, no, no. That's not what we're doing. We're not trying to withdraw from these situations or relieve ourselves from those situations or perhaps as the, as the tendency of some of us might be to say, okay, I'm going to find somewhere where I can work with only Christians. Or perhaps where I'm going, I'm going to go find Christian hairdressers and I'm going to go find a Christian mechanic and I'm going to go to Christian schools even. And so I'm going to do everything I can to avoid these difficult situations where people dislike me because I'm a Christian. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. You must stay in the situation where God has placed you in order to bear witness for Jesus Christ. John 17, perhaps, is the, is the guiding principle for us as we look at this. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. It's a prayer, of course, that Jesus prays for his disciples. I pray that they will not be taken away from the world but that they will live in the world without being contaminated by the world. And that's, that's the goal that Jesus uh, seeks for his disciples and for us as well. So if we're slaves, we're employees, we're husbands, wives, whatever it happens to be when we're saved, don't try to change your situation. Be a witness for Christ in whatever situation you happen to find yourself in. So that's the first point. Don't withdraw from uncomfortable opportunities for the gospel. But there's a second point here tonight, and one, thankfully, that we can find immediately in the text rather than from what the text doesn't say. 
If you happen to be a lone Christian in a hostile setting, a setting in which Christians are held with contempt, you earn the respect of those around you and earn a hearing for the gospel by living contrary to their expectations. Okay? That's the second point, and one that's very clearly stated here. You earn the respect of those around you and you earn a hearing for the gospel by living contrary to their expectations. Slaves are the perfect example here for Paul. As in every era, slaves were hated, and slaves hated what they did. It's just natural. They had zero interest in the success of their masters. They were insolent, they were lazy, and because they were dirt poor and destitute, they were known for stealing, or as our text here says, pilfering, stealing from their employer. And, and we might say, we well, can't really blame them after all, they're slaves. We, we, can, we can actually understand why they would do this, and we can, we can give them a pass, because, after all, they're part of the oppressed class. They should rise up against their oppressors and steal stuff from them so they can have a better life. And so we tend to justify that kind of behavior. And it's not just slaves that we defend, right? Perhaps you do the same in your own domestic and civic situations. Well, if I'm going to have a lazy wife, then guess what? She's going to get a bum, lazy husband, too. If I'm going to have an inattentive husband, then guess what? He's going to have a cold, unresponsive wife, too. If I'm going to have a nasty teacher, then guess what? I'm going to be a nasty student and make life miserable for her. And if I have a boss that hates me, who's stingy and somehow seems to get more from me than he gives to me, then guess what? Things just won't get done very fast around work. And maybe things might go missing at work and show up at my house. This will even out. You know, this is karma. We're going to even things out. That's, that's our tendency, right? Well, this is exactly what Paul says we can't do. We can't justify those kinds of sins just because we're part of an oppressed class. Okay? We need to be the best kind of person in whatever situation we are. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. That's what Jesus, that's what Paul says here. So Paul says, no, you're a Christian. You can't do those things. You can't act like the rest of the world in your domestic and civil relationships and reactions. You can't sit around the break room at work and vent about your stupid job and all the idiots you work for. They do that, yes, but you can't. You can't get together with your friends and grouse about your spouse. They can do that, but you can't. You're a Christian. You can't get together with your fellow students and complain about that moron teacher and her ridiculous class assignments. They can do that, but you can't because you're a Christian. You need to be different. And you need to develop a thick skin along with it because your peers may roll their eyes and leave you alone at the lunch table too, right? Remember the instruction from John 17? You need to be in the world, but you can't be like them. You can't be like them. Otherwise, the gospel founders. And so here, Paul addresses the problem opposite the one that we made in our first point. Some Christians, we saw there, react to the world that holds them in contempt by trying to escape it, to not be in the world. If, I don't, if I'm not supposed to be of the world, let me, I'll play it safe. I won't be in the world at all. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. <laughs> No, we can't do that. We have to be in the world, but not 
of the world. And Paul says, if you're not in the world, however will you get any opportunities for gospel witness? Who will you witness to if you've avoided all this situation? But here, the opposite is the case. Okay, since I have to be in the world, then perhaps I'll make life easier for myself by becoming like the world. That's the second solution that people have to this problem. Some people withdraw and say, I'm not going to be in the world. Others say, okay, if I have to be in the world, then I'll become like the world so life can go easy for me. And Jesus says, neither one can work. Those are inappropriate responses. This will not adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. It won't create stable households where opportunities for the gospel abound. In fact, it will render the gospel message quite unbelievable if you ever have the opportunity to share it, right? Because the gospel hasn't changed you, apparently, because you act just like the world. As D.A. Carson says, to the degree that Christianity assimilates itself to the dominant culture, reasons for anyone joining are hard to come by, right? If the gospel hasn't changed me, and I say, hey, you should become a Christian, they say, well, why? It didn't change you. So why should I bother doing that? It seems to be something that's useless, pointless. So what's the draw of a gospel that doesn't change a thing? If the gospel is to be heard, Paul says, we can't be ordinary slaves. We can't be ordinary workers. We cannot be ordinary students. We cannot be ordinary husbands and wives. No, we have to work relentlessly to or adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's not an easy thing to do. And it can be very unrewarding. The gospel opportunities that you get by living this way are oftentimes very few and very long in developing. But this is the way that the gospel advances, Paul says. It's exactly what he said, for instance, in 1 Timothy 2. Pray for civil circumstances in which we can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, because this is good and pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, because he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And eventually, eventually, it, it may take years, that patient and peaceful Christian conduct will yield opportunities for the gospel. Not right away often. It might be years down the road that your co-worker, that fellow student, student, even your spouse or parent or child about whose soul you are deeply concerned will say to you, hey, I've given you a rough time over the years for your faith, but you know, you're the real deal. Or something like, you know, I haven't been much of a friend to you, but I've got a major life crisis going on right now, and you seem to have a handle on on what to do in these kinds of situations. Can you help me? How do you do it? And suddenly, at long last, the gospel has opportunities. This brings me then to a third concern that Paul has for his readers. You see, sometimes we encounter Christians who are definitely in the world and definitely not of the world, but who are killing the gospel by being annoying or offensive or demeaning or downright rude. Right? The third category. They're all over Facebook. They're all over the whole blogosphere. So, so much time that I wish I could just simply shut down the internet altogether. But Paul addresses this concern too. 
It's our tendency today, and it has been the tendency of repressed people groups in all of history, to agitate for social reform and to improve their lot in life. And Paul lived in a day where social injustice was appalling in its scope. Half, half of the Roman Empire were slaves. For perspective, at the start of the Civil War, American Civil War, 13% of Americans were slaves. But the moral outrage there results in an all-out war. Four times as many slaves, percentage-wise, in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, uh, the, the, the problems of abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, homosexuality were collectively at their historical peak. You think things like that are bad today. They are off the scale back in the Roman world. You think military and police brutality are bad today? <laughs> Live for a while in the Roman Empire and ask about military and police brutality. It was everywhere. It was unchecked. Taxes were collected not to fund people getting abortions, but actually to fund the burning of Christians as, 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 as lights in Nero's garden. Okay? That's what your taxes went to. Amazingly, however, Paul never calls upon believers to rise up and redeem their culture. He never calls on believers to rid society of the horrific vices that marked their day. He never calls upon believers to demand that Christian values be brought back into the public square. He doesn't even call on believers to agitate for prayer and scripture in the public schools. He doesn't even call on the church to organize a boycott of offensive department stores. Nothing like that shows up in the scriptures. Now hear me out. I am just as dismayed as you are about the decline of American society. And I do what I can to support what is good, restrain what is evil, and treat my constitutional rights to vote and to petition as a stewardship of God's grace to me. But when we treat Christian privilege as a constitutional right, we not only intensify the contempt that people have for us, but we also destroy opportunities for the Christian gospel. Many of us can remember a day when Christianity was a privileged religion in America. And now that that is slipping away, we sometimes tend to think that it's part of the Christian mission to reclaim that privilege. We've got to get all that back again. How dare they take away the Bible and prayer out of the public sphere? How dare they take out the phrase, under God, from the Pledge of Allegiance? How dare they remove the Ten Commandments from the walls of the local courthouse? And we agitate to get Christian privilege reinstated. But the fact is, we have no right to Christian privilege. It's not something that God tells us we'll have. Indeed, the history of the church has been overwhelmingly dominated by contempt for Christianity. People who had no Christian privilege at all. Such was the case in Paul's world, and such is rapidly becoming the case, sad to say, in our own. Now is not the time for us to raise our fists, to make demands, to clamor for privilege. This approach will win us very few victories, and will often accelerate our losses. We need to look again to the Christian scriptures for our cues to being faithful witness bearers in the world that has contempt for us in our faith. And the scriptures are very consistent on this matter. Here in our text, 
The call is to be submissive, pleasing in every way, not argumentative. In the words of Titus 3.2, in the next chapter, we need to learn to malign no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, to avoid quarreling, to show perfect courtesy towards all people, even the ones who are nasty to us. He then goes on to add, add the reason, because we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. We need to be kind to these people because they are just like we used to be. And we need opportunities for the gospel. In a very similar context, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes this, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, but only with gentleness. Why? Because, and I quote again, God may perhaps grant repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. Colossians 4, Paul re reiterates this sentiment. Let your speech always be grace, seasoned as though with salt, so that you may know how to answer every man. Peter, we noted last week and earlier here in 1, Timothy, in 1 Peter 3, uh, called on oppressed Christian women to be submissive to their husbands, so that if some do not believe the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So, he says, put on the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Peter then goes on to open his discussion to a more general Christian audience and later in the chapter. In your hearts, he says, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hopefulness that you have. And do this, how? With gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you are not put in their place, but rather they might be ashamed of themselves for slandering you. It's better, if it's God will, to suffer for doing good in order that the gospel may go forward. Again in 1 Timothy 2, Paul calls on believers to pray not for Christian privilege in pagan society, but rather that we may live peaceful, quiet lives, that we live in godliness and holiness, because this pleases God our Savior and is the vehicle whereby people are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And here's the paradox. You know, I'm right and they're wrong. I should be able to fight this fight and win this because I'm right. And, and, and you're right. Christians do have a moral right to privilege. And unbelievers deserve hell. Okay? We've got the moral high ground. We've got the logical high ground. We could take on the world and whip them. But God never enjoins us to assert our rights and privileges as a means to converting souls. Quite the opposite. He calls for a gracious, gentle spirit that answers evil with good and even turns the other cheek that has first been slapped good and hard.
So we conclude then with an observation that Paul's interest in preserving whole households, remember that's the, the, the context in chapter 1, verse 11, and he details a household code of conduct for old men, old women, young men, young women, and now this disenfranchised class of society. And the goal here is for the stability of households and whatever civil structure you have happen to live in, whether that be the workplace, whether that be your home, whether that be your school, or some place where you are being oppressed because you're a Christian. We want to have a stable society so that the word of God will not be reviled, our opponents will be put to shame having nothing to say in verse 8, and so that verse 10, in everything we may adorn the gospel of God our Savior. May God grant to each one of us the grace we need to live out our various lives. We all have different lives to live, often in the context of families and civil circumstances that are difficult, unpleasant, even hostile at times, and to live out our faith graciously, with the result not only that we will have stable households and stable schools and stable workplaces, but because of that stability, we will see the glorious success of the Christian gospel. May the Lord give us grace to that end. Lord, let's, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful tonight that you reached down in your grace, your electing grace, and selected us to salvation. Such were some of us. Some of us can even look back to our own lives where we were the ones that were mocking. We were the ones who were oppressing. We were the ones who were making fun of the Christians around us. But Lord, you saved us. And almost certainly, those of us who are in this category can point to someone in that situation who did not push back hard, who didn't agitate for his rights and argue with us and and show us that Christian privilege is, ought, to, ought to be reinstated in, in American society. Lord, we, we recognize that someone with a meek and humble spirit lived out the Christian faith in whatever situation he was in order that he may have an opportunity to give us the gospel. Lord, now that the situation has changed so that we are those Christians, Lord, I ask, she would cause us to live in such a way that we will adorn the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace and help. To that end, we pray in your name. Amen.